Hey, this is Art Woods. Before getting started, we wanted to give a huge thanks to those of you that could donate to the show. We set a goal of raising $1,500 from listeners by the end of May, and you did it. We really appreciate all of that support, especially right now. This is a huge victory for the podcast, and we plan on maintaining the current format throughout Season 3 thanks to your support. We will take a break in July, though, but we'll be back with a new season in late August. And next year, you'll hear about spider venom, the role of chance in evolution, biological effects of light pollution, and all sorts of other stuff. Thank you to Stephen Ferguson, Blaine Doherty, Ignacio Gonzalez, and all the other listeners who supported us through Patreon over the last few weeks. You guys are the lifeblood that keeps this show going. Here's the last episode for Season 2. On Big Biology, we often talk with researchers who have decades of experience. Many of our guests have published hundreds of papers or entire books about their areas of expertise. But many of our guests also lead labs full of early-stage scientists, including undergrads, grad students, and postdocs. These scientists carry out an enormous amount of the work, and they are the ones who are going to push biology forward. Over the last several months, we've collected short audio clips from these early-stage biologists. And we've been playing those clips at the beginning of our regular episodes. Our associate producer, Michael Levine, spearheaded the project, which we call the Student Spotlight. We received a bunch of awesome submissions, and you can hear them all on our website, bigbiology.org. We heard from young researchers who are searching for new ways to fight breast cancer and invasive algae, and others who are studying feral cats and colonies of ants and turtles. For this episode of Big Biology, we picked four of our favorite submissions and interviewed the students who created them. You hear from Andrew Burchill at Arizona State, Ruth Demery, who recently graduated from Vassar, and Jason Akani and Laura Plimpton, both at Columbia. We talk with them about their science and also ask them about the most important areas for future research, advice for future biology students, and what it's like to be a young scientist when a global pandemic makes the future uncertain. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. We first talk with Andrew Burchill, a fifth-year PhD student at Arizona State University. It turns out that ants are one of the only groups of animals other than humans that consistently cooperate to move large objects. And not surprisingly, they're remarkably good at it. In his spotlight, Andrew compared ants moving a big piece of food to humans moving a heavy piece of furniture. Like us, they size up the object, gather a team of the appropriate size, develop a strategy, and then adjust dynamically as they move it. What's not clear is how they navigate each step rapidly, and without a leader. Here's the conversation. Art and I both really want to thank you for participating in this student spotlight adventure, you know, from the beginning. So thanks for the effort, but also thanks for the creativity because I've heard from many different people how how much they like your representation of what you do when you related it to moving furniture. So I'm not going to steal your steal your thunder about why you use that, but but do you want to talk about how your work research has to do with moving furniture? Sure. So uh, humans and ants, it turns out, are pretty much the only uh, animals out there who regular regularly uh, transport large objects that are too big for one individual to carry. And for ants, though, the the distances they go compared to their body size, at least are much, much greater than 100 meters. And so we're really familiar with the fact that ants will kind of cooperate to move pieces of food. Like there's a, a 1948 cartoon of Donald Duck, I think T for 200 or something, and he's fighting these ants that are taking his picnic supplies. Um, and the ants carry things over rocks and around corners, and he's chasing after them. So this is something we're aware of that ants do, but has remained fairly understudied, at least in my opinion. So, so maybe just tell us a little bit about how they, how they do it. So, so an ant finds an object that it, they want to bring back. And so, so what are the steps in, re, you know, recruiting additional individuals and getting them coordinated? How, how do they do it? Yeah. So th- this is actually a, it's a pretty complicated process. And although many different ants do it, it's only been studied in a, a, a just a handful of ants, um, but it seems like an ant has to find uh, a food object, realize somehow that it's too big for it to carry, and go back uh, and recruit 
its nestmates to come help. And it has to recruit the appropriate number because if there's too few, of course, they can't move it. And if there are too many ants, uh, it's really you're wasting man or wasting not manpower. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They could be doing something else. Uh, then all the ants have to kind of uh, begin lifting and they have to coordinate and have uh, a good idea of where they're going. Because if one ant, for example, took a different route to get to the food, it may try to pull the food in a different direction from someone else. And these ants have to kind of agree on some navigational sense and move this back to the colony. Hmm. So can you, does anybody know about how the ants recruit when they go back to the colony? I mean, how do they know that they need six ants and how do they know that they need maybe one big ant and another or smaller one to get under the food? So, so can you answer that? And then, and then there's, there's two, sorry, there's two different pieces to the question. Can they do, do they do that? And do they always pick the right team? Mm, mm. How often do they go back with the wrong movers? Oh, these, these are great, great questions. And if there's anything that I can kind of tell listeners out there, um, Ants are not a monolith. <laughs> the ants, there are <laughs> over probably 16,000 species of ants, and they do everything and anything. So anything I say is going to be about maybe one of the few species we have studied, but in general, um, they could be doing anything. Yeah, so some ants will... Uh, recruit individuals by kind of running around the food object, spraying out a volatile pheromone, and other ants will be attracted, and eventually that number will increase enough until they can move it. Other ants, it looks like they have some way of assessing size because they'll run back to the nest and get a pretty appropriate number of individuals back to the food, and it's kind of tuned to its size or weight, which is pretty crazy. Um, and then lastly, there's some ants that kind of uh, do this maybe unintelligently. So they'll go back to the nest. They recruit a massive, massive amount of ants. They come, they start moving the object, and as it returns to the nest, the ants that aren't needed just kind of let go and go do something else. So really they have – there's many different strategies they use to kind of match – the number of ants, uh, the team size to the load size. Are ants generally, do they have superpowers? I mean, you always hear about their ability to lift things that are so much bigger. As you get smaller and smaller, do they get stronger and stronger? Yeah, so it, I don't, I don't like, I don't like taking anything away from ants in general, but uh, we do expect smaller things to, or smaller animals to be stronger based on like, um, the cross-sectional area of muscles and their own weight and things like that. Pro proportionally, you know, when they say a flea can jump, you know, if it was the size of a man, it could jump over tall buildings. Um, that's, that's not particularly unexpected. I mean, fleas are masters at this, but it's, it's not as uh, crazy as you'd think. I think the, uh, the ultimate power of the ant is its kind of cooperation in transporting things. It's not just that it's strong, but it's that there are hundreds of them, and they can kind of ampli amplify their strength by working together on this towards the same goal. You've shared some awesome natural history and, and biology of ants, but I don't think we've exactly talked about your research. We started with moving furniture, and then Art and I were grilling you about other things. But So what are you doing right now specifically, and maybe... Why are you doing what you're doing for the next step in your career? Can you intertwine those two things? My question is that you see ants transporting things. And then uh, if you live in places with very active ant species, you'll see these ants transporting objects up walls. So especially in the tropics, you can see like dead lizards or birds or even crabs kind of just being pulled up into trees by ants, which seems incredible to me. You know, a little about the mechanics involved when a single ant is transporting something up and down a wall, but we have no idea what happens when a lot of ants are working together. Essentially, I just gave ants um, different sized loads and watched them as they transported these loads up different angles. 
Um, and I was trying to see if there's some sort of behavioral modification that they do, if they're using a different strategy when they're on vertical surfaces versus horizontal surfaces. So, so what's the result? I mean, how, how different are the strategies on vertical versus horizontal? It doesn't seem like there's a big difference. An issue with the study is that I chose ants who are very, very good at collector transport. And so I gave them objects. I just started gluing lead weights to these frozen crickets just to make them heavier, to try to give them some sort of challenge. And it did seem to slow them down a bit, but it never really got to be too much for them. It never changed um, fundamentally the outcome or the strategy. Uh, yeah, it, it uh. did. Actually, in fact, the crazy thing is they go faster up vertical surfaces. But interestingly, their path would be more sinuous and they would have more backtracking. So they, they would slip sometimes and fall back a bit. And it seems like um, it's not just it's not the angle that matters so much as the ant number. So steeper angles will have more ants involved in a team, and that's probably what causes them to uh, speed up, I guess. What are, you, what are you doing with this, Andrew? Is this, um, so you're, what year are you right now? So I am in my fifth year. I'm close to being finished, but I probably won't do much more collective transport stuff uh, before graduating. Uh, these ants are in Australia. Um, they are very active and, let me say, like performative. <laughs> they do things very easily, but they are so hard to work with and they are so aggressive uh, that I'm going to leave that species on hold for a while. <laughs> And stop okay. getting bites and stings, huh? <laughs> yes, lots of bites. Awesome. Um, and so, what I'm working on right now is a little bit more of uh, kind of an engineering project with my other advisor, Ted Pavlik. Uh, and so, we're looking on how ant colonies can uh, essentially do family meal planning, how just a, a few individuals go out to get the food but they need to pick kind of a healthy diet for the entire colony who has very different, you know, dietary demands. And there are so many individuals, they have maybe even never met some of these people that they're, or sorry, ants that they're feeding. And, and, and that, that means that like ant, ant larvae need different, different nutritional things than the adults do. And so they need to bring back foods that are not good for them, but for their babies, right? Yeah. So yeah. the, the baby ants need tons of protein, and the adults essentially only need carbohydrates. Right, And right. so they have to somehow get this balance. Bringing back something that they themselves don't need or like or want, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so you, you're almost all the way through your PhD, and if you could just sort of look back and advise your former self, and let's just maybe phrase this as advice for students who are thinking about going to grad school or who are just, just entering grad school, uh, what advice would you give them? Um. Hmm. I've, I've had a lot of difficulties, but I think many of those difficulties were unavoidable. Um, the advice I give to most incoming graduate students, though, is, at least in my field, it's best to start on a project. It doesn't have to be your project. It doesn't have to be what you're going to spend the rest of your life doing, but just working on, you know, a, maybe a little mini side project or collaborating with someone else will start those kind of creative juices and you won't have this period of um, paralysis where you're just sitting there hoping, you know, you can just enlighten yourself into the, the best topic that you'll study for the rest of your life because uh, that can just, it can be a really stressful, debilitating position to think yourself into, I guess. What is the thing, and it could be about ants or it could be about, you know, really anything biological, what's the topic that we should be studying now that we're not? Um, I hate to be someone who is just too involved in their own field, but I really like social insect research and I really like collective behavior. <laughs> I, I think that there's a, in this sort of, in colony life of 
most animal or any colonial animal, there are all these moving parts coming together to facilitate this kind of uh, this working whole that's has a lot of emergent properties. And I think that um, there's a certain kind of alienness to how it's designed. So when I see how a colony works and like the how it uses stochasticity and variance in ways that are very unhuman, uh, I think there's a lot of potential that we can use for our, our own systems. Next up, we talk with Ruth Demry, who just graduated from Vassar. As an undergrad, Ruth worked on a diagnostic test for a common parasitic nematode that infects domestic sheep. As you'll hear, the coronavirus outbreak put the kibosh on most of the project, and it became instead a deep dive into the literature on parasites of domesticated animals. Maybe just tell us, first of all, so, so you're, you were just very recently an undergraduate at Vassar College. Um, until, until when? Until about a week ago. It's very recent. <laughs> <laughs> and you graduated. Yeah. So, so how, how did graduation go at, at Vassar, it, given the pandemic? It went well. It was, uh, you know, a virtual commencement. Um, we all logged into a Facebook Live and watched a 20-minute video. And then we all went to our private Zoom meetings with our departments and talked to our professors for a little while. It was kind of cute. Um, overall, it was oh. very strange though. Uh, and were there virtual, vir- virtual parties <laughs> afterward? Um, maybe I, I kind of decided to just, uh, <laughs> get off the technology after that was <laughs> over. I saw way uh, too many videos uh, of people tossing caps, yeah. um, alone in their yard. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it was very funny. Um, well, so, so you've been working on, um, an interesting organism uh, called the barber pole worm, uh, a nematode that infects livestock, uh, sheep and goats. And maybe let's just start by having you tell us about, about the barber pole worm and what, what the big deal is about that. Barber pole worm is a gastrointestinal nematode and it infects sheep and goats uh, primarily, though it's also been found to infect llamas and alpacas. Um, It's also been found to live in some types of wildlife. It's sometimes found in rabbits. Uh, so that might be a way it spreads. So it's, it's found across the world at this point. Um, it's where everywhere where sheep farms are basically. Um, and it's been called multiple times the most economically important parasite of livestock. Uh, and I think for good reason, because it's so damaging and let when left unchecked, it can really decimate, uh, sheep farms. Um, it's, uh, highly adaptable. Basically, it has like the shortest lifespan of any uh, gastrointestinal nematode. Its life cycle is like 20 days. Um, so within, you know, so super large population yeah. sizes and fast evolution. Yeah, and, I think yeah. it's like huh. it, they can put out thousands of eggs per day. And so like the populations are huge and they very quickly adapt to things. They can just go through these life cycles so quack, quick. So it's yeah. <laughs> So when it's in these sheep and goats, is it is it killing them or is it sort of just making them unhealthy and sort of wool production and meat production and things is, is compromised or is it all of the above? Well, eventually it does it does lead to death. Um, that's why it's so important to find it um, fast before it's infected, like half your sheep, um, because it because it's a blood feeding uh, worm. It, I think it's like thirty microliters, however much that is per day. They just they each worm drinks a certain amount of their blood and there's like thousands of worms in an infection. And so, Oh my goodness, 30 microliters and thousands of worms. Wow. That's, that's a lot. That, that turns into liters pretty quick, right? <laughs> so, so you say they're, they're in the gastrointestinal tract, but they're feeding on blood. So they're embedded in the gut wall. Is that, is that what it is? Yeah. They're inside the, uh, the true stomach, the abomasum of a sheep. Um, cause they have multiple stomachs. <laughs> um, and they, they embed themselves into the wall, and that's where, like, once they're an adult, they stay there, and they just produce eggs and feed on their blood constantly. And over time, um, anemia is a um, is one of the biggest problems, because eventually that just, like, can overtake an animal's system. Um, and it's really fr- uh, hard to find, because there's so few, uh, like, outward symptoms. 
other than like you can see there's you know sluggishness there's limited growth happening in the sheep um if it's a younger sheep um but that's like those are all things that you see over time like you don't see them immediately uh and so it's often like just through observation you often are a little too late you know diagnosing the infection so do do they poop poop out a lot of blood i mean can you tell that something's wrong with the their stool no that's the thing is like i <laughs> i learned that a lot of uh the biggest symptom of parasites is uh, diarrhea. Uh, so uh, that's like something you see very quickly on an animal. Um, and you can just, you can be like, oh, that's sick. But um, Hamonchus contortus does not cause diarrhea for some reason. They've huh. just, uh, yeah. they're, they're a lot more subtle in their infection. And so it's, it's really strange, but yeah, it's harder to uh, point out uh, in an animal. Yeah, I wanted to ask about just transmission among sheep. So I'm imagining that these adults are, the nematodes are pumping out eggs. Those are getting pooped out of the, the sheep. And then are they just lying on the ground and other sheep are eating them? Is that, is that how it gets from one sheep to the so, next? So yeah, the eggs uh, are, you know, in the feces and they're on the ground and in there they hatch as larvae. And then there's a few life stages that they go through in the pasture. They're actually, uh, they're able to live in the pasture for um, recent studies have seen anywhere between six months and a year. Uh, so they can just stay there until they get accidentally ingested. Um, and what they do when they're ready to get ingested is they travel up the grass stalks through dewdrops. Um, and so they they travel up to the tips of the grass. And then when the sheep are grazing, they accidentally eat these larvae. Man, I, I think sometimes that insects have really complex life cycles, but they got nothing <laughs> compared to nematodes. <laughs> so this sounds like such a successful you know, option. In, in we haven't been uh, breeding sheep to the degree that we do now forever, but is this nematode that closely related to other parasites? Is there an entire see, genus or family of parasites like this? Or these guys just, this, this particular species is exceptional? Um, from what I've been looking at, they're pretty exceptional. Um, they, they, you know, seem to have really gotten it right in the short lifespan and, uh, high adaptability to different climates and stuff like that. Um, there is another species, uh, Homunculus placei, I think it's pronounced, um, which is a very similar lily related species, but they are a parasite of cattle. Do you know, have people worked on how much, presumably worse, that it's gotten as sheep farms have gotten more common and denser and more productive? It's become a big issue in the past 40, 50 years, um, let's just say. Mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, as sheep farms have gotten bigger, um, it's you know more of an issue when you have infection that you can't control. But also um, the thing that we've been looking at and has become just a huge problem in the past few decades is uh, they are becoming resistant to the drugs we have um, to treat them. And so this chemical right. resistance has become a huge problem in the past, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, and so it's, it's starting to become like, at this point, it's a huge problem. And we are, that's why there's so much research going into like other ways to treat this infection and other ways to quickly diagnose this infection. Yeah, so I want to ask you about the the tests you've been working on, but but maybe before we do that, just set the stage by talking about what what are the treatments for this, and you know how, how do ranchers and scientists approach this? <laughs> yeah, so there are um, three like chemical classes of uh, anthelmintics, which is an antiparasitic drug. Um, that's just what you, we've been calling them. Um, one of those is benzimidazoles, um, and that's kind of the go-to drug um, and has been for about 50 years um, because it has a, it's fairly safe for the animal. Um, whereas the other two um, uh, are, you know, they're still very effective, but they're a little harsher on the system. What, what about um, sort of altering conditions in the pasture, doing some kind of integrated pest management or, you know, cha changing the plants that are in the pasture, that, that kind of thing. Are there more sort of holistic ecological approaches? Yeah. So um, the kind of most preventative measure is uh, rotational grazing, which is uh, easier to implement in large farms where you have multiple pastures. Uh, so smaller farms are more at have more of an issue with this because it's very expensive to, you know, get all the fencing and stuff and, you know, put it all together. But basically you rotate the pasture 
um, that your animals are in. And so after like, you know, certain amount of time on this pasture, you move them to another one and you let that pasture sit and rest. Um, and that allows the grasses to grow back up. It allows the pasture to, uh, basically breathe. And if it's long enough, if it's like six months or something, um, before they return to that pasture, it can be enough time for the larvae to die. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. So maybe tell us a little bit about what you're doing with them. So, um, I was in the process of doing this research, uh, and then we went home for spring break and uh, never came <laughs> never back. Never came back. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it, my, it was my senior research thesis, uh, and so what we ended up doing was I it became a literature research thesis and I looked up everything there is I'll ever need to know about this parasite and uh, wrote out a paper about it and proposed the test we were going to develop. Um, so I did some of the first preliminary steps to this. What we were going to do was uh, develop a test uh, to quickly and reliably diagnose an animal with um, Hamantius contortus. There is like one test that currently exists that uh, is used to diagnose animals with Montes contortus. Um, it's not very, it's not super reliable and it doesn't have any like, you know, quantitative data coming from it. It's, um, you just get a simple yes or no, um, but it takes a long time to do. It's a little difficult. Uh, so we wanted to make something that's a little easier. Um, it's still difficult. You still need a lab, <laughs> um, but we, and we want it to be more informative. How do you see the experiences you've had towards your next career steps? Have you thought about how that's going to come together? Yeah, um, it's funny. A lot of my friends have joked that I'm going to be a farmer, but um, I'm getting to the point where maybe I will be a farmer. <laughs> um, sort of serious. Um, I really do enjoy, I love so much working on the farm and uh, just working with animals and caring for animals. Um, but uh at the moment, I, my my goal is to do research, and I would love to do research somewhere in animal behavior, um, or or even like animal behavior with farm animals, because I've learned more recently, you know, that's not too well studied. Sometimes is like you know, farm animals are considered products, um, and so they're not often studied as animals, um, and so uh, you know that would be a would be a really interesting area to go into because they have such a unique relationship with people they're around like humans um because they're not necessarily domestic you know there's something different um so it, yeah that's an area i'm fascinated by <laughs> well let, let, let me ask just change gears a little bit and ask about um you know since you're just coming out of your undergraduate experience what what's your perception of uh you know the science that you've seen and the role of scientists and, and what it's like to be a scientist um i guess i'm i feel like i'm not super, uh, you know, I, I don't have a full understanding of what it's like out there. I feel like I have a very gray, like perception. It's very cloudy over there. I can't, uh, quite see what happens in the intermediate. Science is off in the mist somewhere. It's somewhere over there, somewhere people are making papers come out of it. I don't know what they're doing. Um, <laughs> I feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Cause like, I feel like I have a very solid understanding of science in undergrad, you know, you have, uh, at least in a liberal arts college, it's pretty easy to enter a research group, but then, you know, grad school, you're like, okay, somewhere before grad school, because that's where I'm at. I'm in the middle. I'm, I know that there are lab tech positions where you can help out with research. And basically I'm just, I'm very confused how you get from there to doing your own and working on stuff and ha developing projects. Um, but yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. I mean, I mean, that, that's a, you know, one of the key, yeah. key events in grad school is sort of gradually becoming better at that. And it's a, well, it's a long process. So, so are you applying to grad schools now? Uh, not yet. I'm, I'm going to take a year, maybe two at this point, considering the world. Um, I'd rather not have an online experience at grad school. Um, so I'm going to wait to see what happens. Virtual field work, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather, if it's going to be online, I'd rather choose a more affordable option because I'm not going for the experience. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I would love to go to, I'm hoping to go to grad school for like zoology or, or something in that, in that area is I'm really, I, I love animal behavior. I I'm learned in the past year, I'm really interested in farm animals as like a group. Um, and so hopefully like animal behavior in that area. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
what advice would you have for, let's say, folks that are maybe just starting college and thinking about science as a career or going to graduate this next year and thinking about science as a career? For people who are just coming in, I would I would say, you know, um, especially in a liberal arts college, I, I don't that's the experience I've had. So for me, um, every time I had an idea or something I wanted to do, even if it didn't exist, if there wasn't a program already existing, I could make it myself. Um, you just have to ask people. You just have to go to the you know career development office and be like, how how do you do this? Like, is there a way I can do this? And that's I don't know. Every time that I I had something I wanted to do that wasn't right in front of me, you, you just have to go digging and you can find it. Um, and so I'd encourage. I encourage students to dig around while they're at college because there's so many opportunities that aren't right in front of you, but they're there. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I, maybe for for people for people the year behind me, um, <laughs> I, I my for for me, I'm my kind of uh, thing that I keep telling myself is to uh, take my time <laughs> and, and don't worry. I, I feel like we're all rushing, especially with, uh, you know, when you want to do things like med school or grad school, there's a lot, there's a lot of years to look at and you're like, Oh my God, I have to hurry. I have to get out of this so I can be there. Um, but I, there's so much at this point to take advantage of. And there's, it's so, it's so much more important to be enjoying, you know, the time and, um, looking to see what you're what you're doing right now what you can do right now because yeah I think I think there's a a lot of opportunities at the post you know undergrad phase so <laughs> I don't know yeah yeah no that's a great perspective is there anything you wish someone would have told you either at the career stage where you sit now or maybe when you first started your undergraduate degree I feel like I would have liked to have heard that I don't have to go to grad school immediately after college. Um, cause I feel like, I mean, you know, when you're in high school, uh, at least for me, I feel like everybody assumes you're going to college. And then I did go to college. And then when you're in undergrad college, everyone assumes you're going to go to grad school. Just knowing that like those expectations aren't, aren't real. You don't have to be thinking about that. You, you, you know, there's, there, there's another path other than straight on to the next school, you know? Um. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's an important part of sort of, you know, developing the the adult perspective of self-determination, right? It's like your entire life, you're just told in school what to do. You know, you, the next hour you go to the next class and the next year you go to the next grade. And, uh, at some point, you know, you've got to determine it yourself. We next talked about human-wildlife conflict with Jason Hagani, a second-year master's student at Columbia University. Jason is developing ways to model conflicts between people and wildlife. He focuses on the American West, using map to predict hotspots of conflict between livestock and large carnivores. We also talked to him about what it's like to be a young scientist, the necessity of adaptability, and the power of visual media. Here's the conversation. Okay, so we start with almost all of our guests and ask just a warm-up question. So let's do that now, just to kind of practice one. So tell us one of your non-scientific skills or talents. All right, I'm a I'm a big photographer actually, and right uh, I guess it's all kind of connected. I don't know if this counts as non-science because it's yeah, sort yeah, of what sure. got me into science to begin with. But I sort of started out as a photographer. I wasn't like I'll be I'll be honest growing up I was really not that interested in in nature or being outside in general I, I found hiking pretty icky and the thought of camping was always uh I don't know <laughs> seemed like a some sort of some sort of nightmare rather than something fun to do but, uh, people do that for fun I know I couldn't believe it I was I was disgusted but uh <laughs> eventually I, I I guess I just somewhere in high school I, I decided to pick up a camera and have some fun with it and it gave me a sort of like a newfound appreciation I I, I take pretty much exclusively nature and landscape photos and huh, that sort neat. of like inspired a an interest in the outdoors and that sort of took me from there onto a career path uh, huh, that is neat. now conservation. Let's talk research. Let's um, do it. You are a master's student right now. That's right. At Columbia University. Mm -hmm. Before we get into your current research, you did a bunch of work with wood turtles in the past, I did. right? 
putting radio telemeters on them and tracking them around. Tell us a little bit about that and maybe if any of that experience had to do with what you're working on now. Yeah, um, so that's what I did for my senior thesis as an undergrad. I wanted to keep a very open mind in terms of what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something close to home because I thought it'd be cool to do some research and help the wildlife near where I live. Um, and so I met uh, Suzanne Macy, who works at the American Museum of Natural History, and she was like, I do work on turtles, and I do them in Connecticut. And I'm like, oh, well, that's right up my alley, because I love turtles, and I'm from Connecticut. So that's, that's sort of how that started. And um, I mean, personally, I had always been interested a little bit in the spatial analysis of nature. I find that to be really fascinating. So we did a project using data that's collected from like 2011 to 2016. So we had a, a pretty robust data set already that we could work with on all the locations of these wood turtles out at like this nature preserve in uh, western Connecticut. And so we just used that to sort of analyze their movement patterns and their home ranges. And it was, it was really cool for me because I got a ton of experience with uh, a lot of techniques that I had never been exposed to before, stuff like QGIS and R in general. So from a growing scientist standpoint, that was awesome. And it sort of augmented my future interest in doing spatial analyses on a larger scale, which yeah. is what I do now. So, so you said on your, um, your spotlight clip that you sent in that um, you're now modeling distributions of large animals in, in the West and thinking about conflict between predators and livestock and, and humans. Uh, so let, let's unpack that. Yeah, so uh, my thesis has taken a lot of dips and turns. Human-wildlife conflict is a very, I guess, sensitive topic in a lot of areas throughout the world, and especially here in the United States, especially when it comes to livestock. So I was originally going to do a, a project on grizzly bear conflict in Montana, but due to sort of like political pressures and a lot of pushback, uh, that project essentially got shut down. So I had to pivot a little bit. So now my, my thesis is going to be mapping human mountain lion conflict out in California. But out there, is, uh, mountain lions are obviously an iconic California species. And um, it's interesting too, the timing of this, because some of them were, uh, populations of the, the mountain lion were just recently considered to be listed under the Endangered Species Act of California. So it's really pertinent right now that the research I'm doing to sort of determine whether or not these populations of this of this large predator should indeed be permanently listed under the Endangered Species Act. And so out in California, you know, mountain lions are often hit by cars, and that's a huge issue. And so one of the things I'll be doing is sort of mapping the risk factor for mountain lions throughout the state uh, uh, for road mortalities, because they lose, I think, 100 mountain lions every year just to being hit by cars. And that's something that hopefully could be avoided. I want to ask about your your models that you talked about. So you're, you're modeling conflict and you're modeling, you know, something about the interaction between people and what cars and mountain lions and mountain lions and livestock. So, so maybe just walk us through what, what does it mean to model that? And, you know, what, what are the core components of that model? I could try to walk you through. I will say a little no, bit. No R code. We cannot. We can actually say our code on the air. <laughs> no, no, no. So, please, no talking code. code. But I, w I will say that I am I am also in a learning process here, and I'm start I'm still Fair picking enough. up the ropes here. Fair so enough. I'll give you uh, the best I can yeah, do. Yeah. But um, Jason, we won't know the difference. You can tell <laughs> that's us. That's true. I could make anything up, and you have no idea. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, so usually it starts with some sort of species distribution model. So I, I, you know, before I can even map the conflict, I need to know a pretty precisely, hopefully, where these mountain lions even are. Because um, you would imagine, you know, hotspots of conflict are just a subset of sort of where mountain lions live. And so you start, I, I typically start off by creating some sort of ecological niche model based on environmental and landscape data that might predispose a mountain lion to live there. So, you know, for example, they're mountain lions, so they probably live in the mountains. And so that's a pretty good place to start uh, when it comes to modeling just sort of where we expect to find mountain lions. And then after you sort of create a map like that, you can take pretty much any sort of anthropogenic data that you think would best suit, you know, the conflict you're looking at. So when it comes to mountain lions in California, I'm interested in three primary types of conflict. There's uh, the depredation, where it comes to both pets and livestock. There's the road mortalities. And there's also incidental poisoning. A lot of farmers out in California use rodenticides uh, to, to kill small animals. Uh, and mountain lions might accidentally eat these rodenticides by consuming some of these animals and then get poisoned in return, um, and that's a big threat. So I'm trying to map each of these separately, and so each one of them requires different type of data that I sort of overlay onto that species distribution model that I created 
to find overlaps in where conflict might occur. So, you know, if I'm looking at road mortality, I'll be including uh, previous previous locations of uh, mountain lion kills on the road. I'll be including like road density, you know, human population density, and sort of sticking that all together onto, onto a map that sort of pinpoint exact hotspots where mm-hmm. we would expect mm-hmm. mountain lions to be most at risk. Most of us don't do science that is politically, biology that's mm-hmm. politically charged, but you do. So have you thought about how to use your photography skills in the service of sort of bringing people around to appreciating the value of what you're doing? I have thought about it. And I think, so originally before, you know, the whole pandemic happened, part of my field work this summer was going to be hopefully including a photojournalism component while I do my field research, getting to know a lot of the people involved in human-wildlife conflict. What drew me to human-wildlife conflict to begin with is that it's very um, complex. It's not as black and white Mm -hmm. as I originally thought it would be. I got into this field in general because I love nature. And when I first started, I was very much, you know, I got to do whatever I can to save the animals. And then as I got into human-wildlife conflict a little more, I began to realize that it's not as clear as that and you know the the human side of things is just as important um and so i am really interested in learning more about the people who are affected by human wildlife conflict because i think especially you know where i am on the east coast you know i i hear great things about grizzly bears you know they're terrifying there but they're also really cool but then again the people who live with them have vastly different opinions on that Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think finding some way to sort of effectively communicate that there are plenty of animals that are very ecologically important. We should care about them. They're worth saving. But the people who are involved in these sort of human wildlife conflicts are just as important. So some way that looks at both sides of, uh, of, the, of the equation when it comes to human wildlife conflict is something I'm interested in. So, so maybe just tell us a little bit about your perception of what it's like to be a grad student now and, um, and, and then maybe what it's like to be a grad student in a global pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's an interesting time to be a grad student, I think. Uh, I think, as we mentioned, especially with my research that's so politically charged to begin with, it's even more politically charged nowadays. Um, and so, you know, I mentioned that, like, my, my grizzly bear project originally fell through the, the holes because uh, essentially it was I, I, what I originally wanted to do was sort of uh, map the, the distribution of grizzly bears in Montana as they sort of repopulated the state. Because um, grizzly bears used to live in pretty much the entire state, but are now confined to just like basically Yellowstone and Glacier National Park. So, you know, I was on the, under the assumption that one day they were going to, you know, make their way back to other parts of the state. And it might be useful to know where they would live, you know, in order to prepare, in order to sort of reduce conflicts in the future. But essentially what I found out is that people in Montana are just so adamantly against the idea of grizzly bears re-inhabiting parts of those state hmm. that the people assume that it's just never going to happen. So my project was essentially, you know, very hypothetical and theoretical, but was likely going to have no value in the future. Yeah, it sort of ran up against the political reality of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, public opinion in many parts of the state. Not all of the state, <laughs> but yeah. It's interesting, like, having to do research in such a politically charged environment. As for, you know, being in a, a grad student in a mm-hmm. pandemic, it's not, it's not ideal, uh, especially as an environmental grad student, you know. Our goal is to be outside. Our goal is to be doing research. Yeah. And a lot of that, uh, including for many of my peers, has sort of been shut down right now, which is definitely a bummer. Um, you know, a lot of us... Extra time for working on your R coding, right? Right, exactly. Which is not exactly everybody's <laughs> dream, you know? Like, <laughs> which, which can be joyful for a little while, but not too long. <laughs> I know. I, I, you get really sick of uh, not knowing anything at all and having to look up everything about R code <laughs> online and just wish you could be outside. <laughs> um it's definitely been challenging, I think, you know, in that regard, uh, especially for people in master's programs who have two years to do a project. Yeah, right. um, very time constrained. Very time constrained. Yeah. I, you know, I got into, mm-hmm. I decided to get my master's degree partially because what I really wanted was to f- figure out what I wanted to do with my life in the future. And while to a certain degree that is still happening, it's a lot harder to do when you are online at home and sort of not involved in any way with uh the environment you're trying to study or not being able to interact in person with some of your expert professors and stuff. So it's challenging, Mm -hmm. I think, in that regard. But, Mm. you know, got to roll with the punches, I suppose. Yep. That's that's the mode. Uh, That's a refreshing (laughs) attitude to have. (laughs) 
Um, you know, I, I think I can't ask you to answer this question out of the context of COVID, but um, what advice would you have for somebody that was sort of, let's say, a, you a year ago? What do you wish somebody would have told you? Or what advice would you have for that person that's thinking about, I mean, let's call it a, a master's degree in, in conservation science or environmental science right now? Yeah, I mean, I would think for, you know, given my experience, I would say the best advice I have out there is to just be adaptable. Uh, you know, I know I, I, I came into this program just like I did as an undergrad with a pretty open mind about what I, what I wanted to do. I came up with a project and it was great and then it fell apart. And then I came mm-hmm. up with another project and then a pandemic hit. And I think, <laughs> so I haven't had great luck so far, but <laughs> I think, I think what I could say is that just, you know, be willing to, to, to change, be willing to, to move around and just be able to quickly adapt. Cause I think that's probably the best skill I've learned, uh, not just, you know, at this master's, but just sort of throughout like being an environmental student is that things are constantly moving around and there are pieces that are, are often outside of your control and just being able to have the ability to sort of, you know, take a 90 degree turn as, you know, as quickly as possible and go somewhere else um, with your research where, mm. where needed has really suited me well. Because, I know, I think maybe a few years ago, I probably would have fallen apart uh, if, you know, all my projects kept collapsing in front of my mm-hmm. eyes and I didn't know what mm-hmm. to do. So I think that's the best piece of advice I can offer. Mm. So, um, Jason... We, you know, we really thank you for being on and talking to us about your research as well as your sort of uh, perception of what, what's going on in the field now and what the future is starting to look like. Um, but we don't want to end without giving you the chance to tell us what you need to tell us in the audience that we didn't bother to ask you. What do we leave out? Oh, man. I would just say uh, try to stay informed. I think uh, the biggest problem out there is just somewhat of a – it's not necessarily a lack of interest, but just somewhat of a lack of education. And I think there's plenty of good uh, research out there that is worth hearing that just struggles to, I get, I get to reach the public. And I feel like that's something I have, I hope to do in the future is sort of, you know, improve upon that. And something I found is very valuable to me. Uh, as you know, I, I've, in some ways, I feel like an outsider uh, to sort of this field because I came in late and I came in sort of not as a sort of devout naturalist growing up, but as someone who just got into this recently and got into it because I love looking at pretty things online and then <laughs> took those pictures and, you know, inspired myself. And so I would say that that's something I think is important. I, the last thing I just want to say is just spend some time outside. I think it's huge. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's really done wonders for me. And I think it really, it really gets you, you know, to appreciate, um, you know, just how awesome our planet is. And I think one of the things I found really refreshing nowadays is how many people I've seen get into birding. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm personally not a birder, but I just love that people are ready to spend more time outdoors and appreciating the natural world. And I think hopefully that'll, that'll bode super well in the future for uh, the state of science and the environment. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks again, well, thanks Jason. Thanks so much for Yeah, thank you guys. This is show, really Jason. great. And I appreciate your, your interest in my work. Final spotlight went to Laura Plimpton, who recently finished her master's thesis and soon will start her PhD at Columbia University. Laura's work examines whether feral cats in New York City influence the dynamics of Lyme disease by feeding on the rodents that act as Lyme reservoirs. To figure that out, Laura needed to determine whether the cats were even eating wild prey, so she spent her time digging around in their litter boxes. Here's our conversation. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's great to have you on the show, and congratulations on being one of the student spotlight winners. Uh, we were super impressed with your uh, your one minute one minute clip. <laughs> Thank you. So you're a, a second year master's student at Columbia, and, and maybe just 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 for context. So are you are you getting close to the end of the master's? Did you already finish it up? Where where are you at in the trajectory? Uh, so I just finished up the master's program. And I'm starting uh, in the PhD program in the same department under the same advisor and same oh, lab fantastic. Um, oh, in the fall. Thanks. So, so you're going to continue on with the same kind of line of line of research? Um, somewhat. I mean, we're working right now on developing a project around urban ecology and zoonotic disease transmission. Hmm. Uh, but 
depends on the logistical constraints and, yeah. you know, of course, funding, things like that. Yep. All the usual yeah, stuff. be honest. Are you just tired of cat poop? Is that what it comes down to? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Time for a break. <laughs> oh, God, it's terrible. Um, it smells awful. Ugh, pulling it apart, getting the DNA out of it, ugh, yeah. picking no, it up. No, thank you. Wow. No, thank so you. cat no, poop thank is you. an entree into a conversation. Okay, so so let, let's build in some context here. So so tell us about about cats and about what you know what what your interest is in zoonotic diseases and urban cats. Yeah, so the research for it started because we were curious what the role of urban cats were in the Lyme disease system as the sort of most abundant predator of the main host of the pathogen, being the white-footed mouse, and really the only predator or mammalian predator of them out on Staten Island. So that was sort of the origins of it. But then as we started looking at them more and more, we realized there are so many unanswered questions about them, um, from what they're eating and their role in the environment to different urban zoonotic disease systems. And then, of course, the management of the cats, too, which is this sort of hotly debated topic, which there's not really a consensus on even now. Okay. So uh, you may know that we've talked with Rick Osfeld and Felisa Kiesing about Lyme disease um, in the past, but for anybody that doesn't live in your part of the world and hasn't had the wonderful experience of hearing all about Borrelia, um, I, um, I want to ask you to sort of be specific about how the cats are working because how you think the cats are working, or maybe you know because two years of research, if the white-footed mice are the things that are carrying around that bacteria that gets into the ticks and gets into other mice or gets into us... Cats eat those mice. Are you thinking that cats are sort of protective against Lyme disease risk, or is it more complicated than that? Did you take a politically charged topic and you make it that much more difficult? So what's, what is the research? Um, yeah, no, it's definitely more complicated and simply, oh, they might be helping this reduce Lyme prevalence. Mm-hmm. And within my two years for the master's program, I wasn't really able to get at that question specifically. So the first thing we did was really get at, are the cats even eating natural prey because they're fed daily. So the assumption is that they shouldn't be. And then you can kind of look at what they're eating, um, the frequency at which they eat those different species, and then understand the population dynamics. Is the mouse population reducing or something like that? And what we found, and this is not, there's not enough data to really support this in any meaningful conclusion, but at least white-footed mice, cats in more forested environments will predate more heavily on white-footed mice than house mice, which are more common in um, less forested and more developed areas, Mm, in the diet at least. And then when we tried to trap the mice in those forested environments, interestingly, we couldn't find any in live traps. We couldn't catch them, even though they were in the diet. So there might be something more going on where perhaps those mice are more fear adverse or trap adverse in this case. So the cats are getting in, but the traps are not. Yeah, yeah. And then in other parts of the park as well, we would catch mice regularly in those traps. Mm -hmm. So it seems that the effect of the cats, if that is a sign of the effect of the cats, we don't really know. But if it is, it's really on a small scale, really Mm -hmm. just in the surrounding area of the colony itself. Interesting. Hmm. So, so the mice, the white-footed mice, are they um, fairly rare to find in the cat's diets? I mean, you find them, but it's not common, or that they comprise most of the diets of the cats in the forested areas? So they were the third most frequent prey type in the diet. The only other things were house mouse, which was most frequent in those urban colonies, or more, not urban because they're all urban, but uh, more developed colonies, and then um, pigeons. It's Interesting because it's either pigeons or songbirds. That's one or the other in the diet. It's the same thing you see with the mice. It's house mice or white-footed mice. Um, And that that relationship was really correlated with how developed the area was around the colony Mm -hmm. and then how intensely developed it was as well. So, so I, I think I can imagine how you're estimating these proportions in the diet, um, you know, based on sampling cat poop. But are you doing some kind of DNA-based analysis of the poop in order to estimate fractions attributable to different prey items? Is that, is that the idea? Yeah, so it's um, a metabarcoding approach. So we amplified a vertebrate-specific region in uh, all of the fecal, and then can really only get a presence-absence from the reads that match to different vertebrate species, because... Hmm. Different species will amplify differently and sort of be represented variably in terms of percent of reads. So it's Mm -hmm. frequency of occurrences, yes, no, it was in the sample, and then the number of samples out of the total um, that contain that prey item. Cool. Hmm. 
That's really neat. So what, how are you using this work or, or how is the group that you've been working with planning to use the group? It sounds like, you know, as you're alluding to, this is early stages of asking the question, what's coming next? I mean, to the extent you're involved or where, where the project generally is going? Yeah, well, I'm hopeful to continue working on um, the cats because especially in New York, it's one of those things where everyone has a different opinion, but everyone is of the opinion that something needs to be done. It's just the question of <laughs> what are we going to do about it? Um, and there's not a lot of research there. And I think some research would really help all of these different stakeholders come to a consensus of how are we going to manage these populations um, and how are we going to consider the environment and the functioning of these urban parks as well as the welfare of the cats. So I'm hopeful to keep working on it and especially sort of expand into different zoonoses because I think the role of cats in the Lyme disease system is probably somewhat limited and they might have larger roles in other zoonoses that is, for example, that they're definitive hosts of such as Toxo or Bartonella. Mm -hmm. um, so things that might be more relevant to cats uh, but then also to cat health and wildlife health, such as looking at like spillover events between cats and wildlife and how um, urban colonies may facilitate interactions between cats and um, native species and things like that. It seems like cats are a real flashpoint. People have strong kind of pro or anti-cat positions based on, you know, how they feel about cats as pets and how they feel about the ecological effects of, of cats. But, but in terms of um, just, just public perception and public response to your work, um, what, what, is, what has it been? Yeah, well, since I'm still writing up this paper and still working on analyzing the results, we haven't brought it to the public yet. Mm -hmm. But I have had conversations with um, colony caretakers because they did help me in the beginnings of this project of granting me mm -hmm. access to those colonies and um, putting out camera traps and things like that. And I mean, their main concern is the welfare of these cats. Um, and that's what most people, I think, concern is when you talk about outdoor cat colonies. And then, of course, us as ecologists and conservationists and scientists are thinking about, well, the wildlife around them as well. But I think we all have this common goal of reducing the outdoor cat population overall. Like, no one mm -hmm. wants them outside. Mm -hmm. um, I think everyone can acknowledge that it's not a great life for the cats. Um, and their mm -hmm. health is sort of damaged by being out there. And it's also not great for the environment. The question really becomes, what do we do about it and how can we manage yeah. it in a way that everyone can kind of get behind? It sounds like the answer is yes, but I mean, the, you, you perceive that the colony caretakers also, you know, can, can see and acknowledge the ecological problems that the cats cause and are worried about that. Yeah. yeah, definitely. They've told me that of the arguments uh, sort of against cat colonies, mm -hmm. that's one that they can understand the most. It resonates with it, them, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, at the heart of it, they care about animals and sure. that's why they're doing yeah. what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So, Laura, if it's good with you, let's zoom out a little bit and talk about, you know, how you're thinking about your PhD, your upcoming PhD en route to a career. What's your What's your trajectory looking like right now? Have you decided going for the professorship or more interested in management of cats or, you know, other wildlife, whatever it might be? <laughs> one, day, one day at a time. Um, <laughs> Back off, that's Martin. That's totally a fair answer. <laughs> um, well, so the thing that really intrigues me about this cat question is sort of the policy implications for it, because we're talking about this serious issue in conservation and that I kind of see is like, we could find a solution for this, at least in New York City, at least in like that, uh, that scope. Um, mm -hmm. So we could make an impact there. Um, and so while I'm really interested in staying in academia and continuing research and professorships, I just want to be mindful that there's always a conservation aspect to what I do and that potentially how that could inform policy or how that could, um, that information could be brought to the table to, I don't know, better protect threatened species. Yeah, sure. Do you what's your feeling now for the ability of academics to make those cases? Do you think that there are sort of challenges of that job and the responsibilities of teaching and the other things that have to happen that make the facilitation of action and policy change possible? I think it's difficult with the structure that we have yeah. now, um, especially the responsibilities that fall on the sort of shoulders of PIs and professors and things like that. But I think it's important. And I think it's, it's possible. I think it's just everybody who's doing that research, you kind of need to take a step back and remember why we're doing this in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. And I think as scientists, sometimes we're 
prone to not have an opinion or not to not bias our results, right? By what we think mm-hmm. should happen after we <laughs> figure something out. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to conservation, I kind of feel like you need to take what you've learned and take what you've got and bring it to the table and push policymakers and the people who can go out and use that science and do something about it to do it. Maybe tell us what it's like to be doing science there in New York City during the coronavirus pandemic. You got, you're in one of the real hot spots in the world. So what, what effect has it had on you? Yeah. Uh, well, it came up... It wasn't sudden, like especially someone who works in zoonotic diseases and my lab talks about these types of things all the time. But then to see it sort of happen in real time in the city I was living in was wild. Yeah, to be just like following this spillover event from start to finish in the news and then being part of it, I was just like, wow, this is insane. (laughs) Total immersion. (laughs) Yeah, but it really sort of brought this back to me. This is important work and understanding that this is going to happen again and that the root of the problem is sort of in how we interact with wildlife and how we uh, interact with our environment as well. Um, makes me feel like encourage or yeah, uh, encouraging about the work that we're doing and that scientists are doing and things like that. So as scary as it was, it um, makes me feel more passionate about the direction mm-hmm. that things are going. Mm-hmm. So, so in, in terms of just being able to do your work, uh, I guess you must have been in the writing phase and analysis phase by the time the, the pandemic really ramped. Oh, no, you were still out collecting data? <laughs> oh, wow. I was in the lab. Oh. Um, yeah, I was in the middle of, I, I was trying to get my samples um, prepped to send out for sequencing. Uh-huh. And I was worried that the sequencing lab was going to shut down and that they wouldn't be able to sequence it. And then all of these, I was, it's a two-step PCR, so I'd already done the first and I was about to do the second. And I was like, if I don't get back here for a couple of months, it's going to be an issue. So I remember that night, one of my, uh, the night before I left Manhattan to come stay with my, uh, with my mom, um, she, I was in the lab and one of my, uh, the people in my master's cohort who was working in the lab next door um, on plant evolution came over and was like, tag team pipetting with me well, <laughs> to get just, it all just done. To crank it out. To, huh? Yeah. Yeah, to get those samples out. And then the next morning I drove down to New Jersey and dropped the samples off in person at the lab to make sure nothing went wrong with delivery or mail services wow. and things like that. Wow. It's been a mad dash to the finish line, I'd say. Sounds like it. So Laura, it was it was really encouraging to hear about your relatively positive take on what the pandemic living in New York may mean for science, but generally, do you have concerns about the state of science right now? Mm, well, in light of coronavirus, I guess it's sort of the care that people take in looking at the social dynamics of disease transmission, in addition to sort of the ecology and science of it, um, because this is something that is affecting people real time and sort of live. and. It's hard to incorporate all the different people, and I also think disciplines in this case that need to be incorporated into this conversation in such a uh, short time frame. And so that sometimes worries me a little bit. That and then the ability of scientists, especially young scientists, to be able to push through this right now and get back and do their research and um, get the funding that they need and support that they need. Uh, Doing it virtually is difficult. Um, And then even now, sort of in light of the events of the last two weeks, ensuring that science is accessible to all people and that representation is improved and who is represented in science and who we listen to and whose voices uh, is more representative of our very diverse population, I think is also Mm -hmm. something that worries me. I I agree. I think Mm -hmm. this last couple of weeks is going to really refocus the scientific community on issues of access and inequality and of opportunity Mm -hmm. in in science. I think that's going to be a big part of the discussion over the next couple of years. Yeah. And and for the better. I hope, I think it's, it's a good thing to see people talking about access to science and access to research and improving access and improving Mm -hmm. diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the issues we talk about and the issues we study sometimes disproportionately affect different groups of people and mm-hmm, to not right. have their voices represented in this science, I feel is doing us and them and everyone a disservice. Mm-hmm. 
Laura, one other thing that I, I wanted to ask that maybe comes off of what you were just talking about. If you could go back in time and tell yourself what you now know, like maybe at the time you're choosing your master's program and, you know, think about how, not just what advice you'd give yourself, but what forms of advice you'd want to give other students at that stage, what might that be? Hmm. It's a hard question. It's like only two years ago, but it feels like, wow. Hey, you're the authority. We can't ask anybody else. I mean, Art, Art and I don't know this stuff. It's been 200 years since we've been in position. Um, oh, well, I would say that the advice I would give is to find it, and this is not always easy, and it falls on the shoulders of the mentors too, um, to find a good mentor and someone who advocates for you and pushes for you and supports for you, especially as an early career scientist, and who's willing to listen to your ideas and your, and your voice and your, even if they're wild thoughts. I mean, some of the most interesting projects come out of really just like throwing things against the wall and being like, that sounds weird, but let me see if it sticks. Mm -hmm. And the cat mm -hmm. project itself was really something that we, that when I thought of it, I was just like, no way, no way. Or is my advisor going to go for this? <laughs> um, it's just so weird. It's just so random, especially for the Lyme disease system. Yeah. Um, and I really appreciated my advisor sort of taking that risk on something that was sort of out of there. Uh, out of their sort of realm of research and saying, yeah, let's try it and let's go for it. Right. Um, and so I guess that responsibility is both on the mentors uh, to take those risks and also on the students to push for what they want to, what they, what they're interested in. Hmm. All right. Well, we should run. You should run. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you guys. It's awesome to talk to you both. Um, All right. So, yeah. let, us, let us know how the PhD goes. Yeah, <laughs> well, good luck. All okay. right, thanks. Okay. Have a good day. All right, see you. Bye. 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 The pathway to becoming a professional scientist is a difficult one. Grad students live on a shoestring budget while they train and then enter a tough job market. The coronavirus pandemic has only made it worse. Some students have been forced to cancel their field work and overseas travel, and others have abandoned important experiments. Universities are preparing for declining enrollment and budget cuts, which could make it especially difficult for young scientists to find their next jobs. The challenges are significant, but if students like the four we interviewed are any indication, there's a lot of awesome up-and-coming talent poised to push biology to new and important places. Thanks for listening to the last episode of Season 2 of Big Biology. You can find all of the original Student Spotlight videos on our website, bigbiology.org. We're going to take a break during the month of July to prepare for season three. So look for us again in late August. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing the episode. Mike Levine runs our social media channels and produces the student spotlights. Dana Baxter helps with background research and Steve Lane manages our website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear. 